to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. We are going to be entering into the first part of um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, Last week we spent some time looking at the background and the context. Um, This week we're going to still build into that background and context. Um, As I uh, used to sit and listen to the sermons, um, sometimes uh, you come across different sections of Scripture or different verses that seem really out of place or maybe even difficult to understand or confusing. Uh, It could be even contradictory contradicting sometimes the things that you've heard. Um, But then if you then begin to study the context of that entire paragraph or maybe that whole chapter, or if you understand the, the, the point that the author was making in the entire book, well, then it makes sense for, for, the writer, the author, to say this one sentence, for him to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, God knowing exactly what people need to hear and understand, uh, to have their souls um, completely captivated in him. And so um, that, that idea of context is huge. So I spend quite a bit of time on that. I want you to understand the people, the original audience that was there. I want you to understand what the culture was like. And so we're going to build into that a little bit. And like last week, I went ahead and brought some places, some pieces out from further on in the book. Um, I'm going to bring up a little bit more of that as we build this context. And I think today it will really help you understand as we go through the different chapters um, of this book, I think it will really help to understand. So um, first thing I wanted you to see again, just to understand the city, what the city was like. And so I have a couple of slides. I'm not huge on slides, but just to understand that Corinth was in a very um, um, strategic place. for the gospel to go forth to different places. Um, it was uh, in, the, in the middle of the Mediterranean there, and so you can see where Greece, and then obviously Rome, the, the powerhouse. You've got Egypt down here, Alexandria, and then of course you've got um, Israel and Jordan, all the Middle East, and then all what would be Asia, all what would be Europe, and so just a, a normal place, God's wisdom of placing the city there um, that, that he would use. Now, so the city was destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C., and then it sat dormant for about 100 years, and then Julius Caesar in 44 B.C. comes up, and he re- reestablishes the city as a Roman colony. In fact, it was called Corinth, the praise of Julius. Some of you may decide to do that one day, to have a city named after you, and that'd be, that'd be wonderful. Um, so it, it's not only a, a strategic location, it's a beautiful city. People were drawn to it, and so I think there's another slide showing um, just, just you can see the, the coast there. And so that's on the, the north end of, of uh, Corinth there. And so the Mediterranean would be on the south end. And so um, just a beautiful coastal area, Mediterranean. Um, and, and, and then I, I shared last week, I showed where there was actually an isthmus. And so they turned that into a canal. And so the point of that was you've got the Mediterranean down on the south end, turbulent waters, lots of, of difficulty. And so, and so, so ships uh, coming from the east or the west 
could go through this little isthmus and they would literally lift the boats out of the water and carry them on roads instead of going around and going south into those deeper parts of the sea. And so it's a natural point that where all sorts of things would would come to that area and it would be a a strategic location. Um, With that, with with that opportunity of a port location, um, it attracts all kinds of opportunities and vices, right? So there's the good things that come with that and then there's also the evil things that come with that. And so um, one of the things that uh, Corinth was synonymous with was I- immorality, just known for debauchery, known for licentious living. It was a sailor's town, if you can imagine that. Not only a sailor's town where sailors would come in, um, but also um, there was about 14,000 um, old Roman um, soldiers that were retired and living there. So kind of a, a rough, you know, kind of pull up your bootstraps, uh, a lot of fighting going on, a lot of, a lot of stuff, and maybe you're from a town like that. And so um, as you pulled into this port, the, the next slide is of what you saw as you pulled in from that water we just looked at, this was the mount um, where the temple of Aphrodite sat. So on top of that mount, this huge, beautiful um, temple but it was built in the name of Aphrodite, and so, um, which was brought in all the sexual immorality. Literally a thousand women of the night that would every single night move down into that city to, to go to work. And so every single night. And so all those things were, were in this city. And so that was the Acropolis there, that huge monolithic mount. Um, so Corinth was known for sexual immorality, greed, selfish ambition, um, religious pluralism. There were lots of gods. There was unlimited business opportunity for wealth. Um, there was new education, um, new philosophies that were spreading. You don't know how, remember your humanities were, those port cities were where people would travel in and start spreading new philosophies, new ideas. Um, all the creature comforts in life and lots of them. And so um, this created a culture of people who measured success and value by externals. So wealth and status, prideful posturing, um, impressive educational rhetorical skills, uh, enviable talents and abilities, plus a very gritty pull-up-your-bootstraps mentality that prized strength because the city had been rebuilt by Julius Caesar and for 100 years laid dormant, and now all those people that had built the city back, it was just wide open to opportunity. And so what happened? People brought in businesses, all kinds of businesses, and the city was rebuilt, and it was kind of like these areas in Tulsa that you see when it's a new area, and it's just flourishing, and there's, there's new buildings and, and new opportunities and new businesses popping up. That's what was going on in Corinth. And so it was impressive. We, we, we are. We're impressed by those things. And so um, in that setting, God sends a gospel message that's focused on one guy. And the message is, you can't be good enough. Your status doesn't mean anything. You can't earn your way and pull up your bootstraps. You can't live good enough to get to this God. All other gods, all other religions believe that humanity does good deeds to work our way to God. And here comes the gospel that says, you could never work your way to God. Here comes the gospel in a town that prizes strength and autonomy and says, this God came to you and died for you. So it's completely counterintuitive. And so uh, what a beautiful place for the gospel to break forth. And so, um, so like much of America, in a culture that values and exalts uh, the elite, the strong, 
And even as believers sometimes, we, 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 we exalt and uh, prize some people who are completely um, antithetical to anything Christian. And if we're not careful, we're really drawn to all of their ideas, all of their things. And it's okay to enjoy an iPhone because Steve Jobs was a brilliant man, right? But if we idolize Steve Jobs and go, I want to be more like him, more like him, more like him, we've got to realize there's a whole character issue. There's a whole flaw in that thinking. And so um, in a culture that values and exalts the elite and those who are strong, how is humility and meekness and suffering viewed? How do we view those that you see around you who are going through suffering? Sadly, even inside the church sometimes, it's kind of like, well, you know, we're doing okay. As long as it doesn't impact us, just, I mean, that, that's too bad. Instead of moving towards them in compassion and care. And so just thinking through that, just as we go through the book, keep thinking through that. So what do we, even inside the church, do we prize? It's difficult being in a place like this, um, in, in this setting, Peoria and 61st. Um, there's a reason that, that it's, it's kind of known, it's actually, this is labeled as the left behind area, the forgotten area of Tulsa. These two schools that I have been spending some time talking to, they, they just know we're looked over, we're left behind. Sometimes people don't want to work there for very long. It can be rough. It can be difficult. So um, that's just the city there. That's a little bit about um, the city. Um, here's a couple of themes we're going to see. First of all, um, Christ is our true treasure. Gazing and captivation in him is where we find salvation and eternal life. And so that's from 2 Corinthians 3 at the end there. So this idea of if we're beholding Christ, you're being transformed from one glory to another. If you're not beholding Christ... If at 14 you prayed a prayer at a camp and have never been in love with Jesus daily since then, that's not captivated in Christ. You're not beholding him. You, you just prayed a prayer and you're just trying to pull up your own bootstraps and, and do some really hard work for God. Trying to keep the rules. Trying to keep it all straight. We're going to see here that Christ is our true treasure. Beholding him. It's where we find salvation and eternal life. So God's paradigm, second one is God's paradigm is not our own. God uses weakness in us to show forth his own glory and power. And so all of us would agree with that. Um, we all know that. We're, we're inspired with those, sto those stories when that happens, when someone of a weak place comes and rises up. And, and so we're all inspired by that. That's the Hallmark Channel and all those shows. But we just don't want it for ourselves. Like it'd be fine for that family to go through some tough stuff and to see God grow his godliness and, and to see them um, go through some things and like, oh, that's a beautiful story. Just, I don't want that for myself, right? We all have that feeling. Um, and then third, identification with Christ has produced suffering and weakness, which in turn leads to life and salvation for others. It, it's the, the model of Christ. It was counterintuitive. It was exactly opposite of what the Jews thought. The Jews wanted the Messiah to come and be this powerful, powerful um, uh, military leader and that was going to come in and bring all of Israel's forces and bring them in, and they were going to be this powerful force. And they were saying, even to the end, three years into his ministry, Lord, now are you going to blow the whistle and all your troops are come? Now are you going to restore the kingdom? Are we finally going to be winners? No, I'm going to die in three days. In the next few years, you're going to die. 
You want to follow me? Every single day, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. That's the kingdom. Love one another with that selfish love that you have for yourself. Love God like there is nothing else in this world. That's, that's what my kingdom's built on. So completely different. So I put two questions out here that I'm going to keep these before us. Um, here, here's the things that I, I, and you can write these down, put them in your phone. Um, as I've taught through this before at different churches, um, here's, here's what um, I think that gets to the crux of this. I'll my, I adapt one, but I've, I've went through this before, and, and these are two beautiful questions to consider. How can I be captivated by the Jesus of the cross when I'm obsessed with pride and self-seeking and comfort? How can I be captivated by the Jesus of the cross, not, not maybe all the other types of Jesus, all the other products of Jesus that we've turned him into, and that's what we're going to look at today, but how can I be captivated by the Jesus of the cross when I'm obsessed with pride and self-seeking and comfort? This is exactly what Paul's saying to this people in Corinth. Don't you see? You're so selfish. You're seeking your own comfort. You're looking for exaltation when this is all about humility at the foot of the cross. The second question is, what implications does that truth have on me loving Christ and making him known to others? So the great commission and the great commandment there. So if I say I want to live for God and, and, and make him known and be in love with God, love God and love others, and then to take the gospel to others, how does that first question bring problems. If I'm not captivated in Christ, if I am obsessed and my time goes to those things of pride and self-seeking and comfort, what effect is that going to have on the mission? So um, let's go back to the city, what the city was like. I just want to hit on this again as we're building into this. Four big categories. And I don't know if we had it. I've got it. You can uh, um, ask, email me if you want some of the notes, if the slides aren't working on it. But it, four categories I put down were licentious living, and then prosperous living, and then comfortable living, and philosophical living. And what I mean by that is there was licentious living, like I said, drunkenness, debauchery, um, the, the, all of the um, immorality that was the city was known for, this port city. Um, then also just prosperous living. There was unlimited business opportunities, commerce, trade, upward mobility. There was comfortable living. For those who just said, it's a beautiful Mediterranean area, the food, the seafood, um, all of the, the rich soil that was there, um, all the gardens that were there, uh, wonderful weather, beautiful coastal and mountainous scenery. There was art and music and culture but also philosophical living. There were new philosophies, education, and, and religious pluralism. So um, all types of different beliefs. That was what the city brought to the table. But what about the church in Corinth? Now we've learned a little bit about the context of the city and the culture, what type of people they were, and here God brings in Paul to plant this church. And on his missionary trip in there, um, we're going to learn, now what was the church in Corinth like? Um, and this is what we gather from Paul's two letters to them. Now, there were about four letters that Paul wrote to Cor the Corinthians. We only have two of those. Um, so, but here are the major um, immaturity issues that were going on in that church just very clearly if you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Um, divisions. Divisions over ethnicity, um, over we're the spiritual elites, because here are the gifts that we have. The spiritual gifts that we have in that side of the room, they don't have these spiritual gifts. So there was this elitism, even in the spiritual gifts. Um, those who were um, in class that were wealthy marginalized the poor, had nothing to do. It even went to their seating. They would, hey, hey, seat this person here, and the rest of us will sit over here. 
um, influence. They valued power, nobility, rich, wise. Um, They despised the lowly and poor and weak. Incest. A man was with his father's wife, and they'd been tolerating it, a known thing for a while. Um, other sexual immorality, just running rampant. They were suing each other. There were lawsuits inside the body, just suing each other. Why? Because money rules, right? And we're winners. There, was, there were disruptive worship services. Um, the spiritual elites and the marginalized, they based everything on the, the people's ability and eloquence and spiritual gifts. And so, um, as we're going to see a little bit today, there were these uh, people that were a part of the church that were um, eloquent in their words. So if you go back to 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I didn't come to you uh, trying to use man's wisdom and eloquence. I come to you with cross, the Christ and him crucified. Remember the first of 1 Corinthians? There's also horrible marriages, um, marriages that were really just having a hard time. Um, there were food offered to false gods and false idols. Um, there was arguments about should men and women wear head coverings. Um, there, there were the wealthy, again, marginalizing the poor, even in the Lord's Supper. So can you imagine that, like holding people off because of the way you look and the way you dress? Um, into this wild and licentious, arrogant and prideful, worldly and self-seeking culture, God sends his grace in the gospel. Would that have been your first choice? Or would you have looked for a cleaner, better city? I think sometimes we, we, we tend to do that as Christians. Like, let's, let's look for the cleaner, maybe a little bit better off area, and that's what we feel comfortable with. And look what God does. Look at the beauty of this God. I asked last week, what would it be like going to a church like this? All those things I just listened, listed out. Have you been a part of a church that has that much stuff going on? Like, we've all been a part of some jacked-up churches before, right? But, like, with all that going on, I mean, most of us would be, like, 10 minutes in, like, what's going on? We're, we're heading out. Be honest with yourself. Do you think you would go to a church like this? Would you go to a church? Because, you know what? It was God's will to have them in that church. As jacked up as it is. Think, think the where we're at. <laughs> The consumeristic, consumeristic culture, attractional church. I have people around me sometimes that are some of the loftiest people that can explain to you all the, the different views on theology, all the different views on the dispensations, all the different categorizations, and yet sometimes it's some of the most immature people. They have all kinds of biblical knowledge, and they're not loving to people at all. In fact, they're, they're some of the worst consumers. And we know that it's being written. We're an unbiblical, um, a very um, uh, small understanding of scriptures for most of the mainstream churches in America. And so we don't have a really good understanding of scriptures. Um, but then also we're very consumeristic. So that's why we love Quick Trip. That's why we love Walmart or Costco. I walk in, it takes about 10 seconds, and we want our spiritual life to even be the same way. So would you go to a church like this? We would probably opt out, yet God wanted to display his glory and power through that people. That jacked up. God, our small group. Did you hear what they were talking about? Oh my gosh, good grief, their family. Did you see their kids? Oh my gosh, we used to have a small group in Tahlequah, 19, every, every small group we have, it always has like 19 kids. And so our, our people would run down, there's a family in there, they would run down the hall, and we, since we were pastors and Jamie wasn't working, it was like we never had anything nice, but we had, we had bought a new couch, 
like 12 kids just barreling into this couch and just, you know, and so I know it's going to tear, get torn up. And so literally I was having to like, as I'm talking to the guy who's the parent to this kid, like, hey, listen, um, I'm going to go ahead and stop then because kids are bleeding and that's broken now, but I'm going to sit your kids in time out. He just kept on with the conversation. So like we always have stuff going on. There's always messiness. It's never perfect. It's never um, that setting. And so that's just the way it is. And so what do you do? What, what if God's will for you was to commit and to jump in with all the mess. Because we're consumeristic and because we're church planting, I know that people will kind of like, well, let's see. And the first detection of something that they don't like, or I noticed they did this, or I noticed they did this, or, you know, the song was, we're backing out. And so just know that, I mean, look at this messy church that God was saying, this, I'm giving them my word. I'm speaking directly to them through Paul here. And so... Um, Think through that with all the mess, all the problems, and see what God might do. Because ironically, they were actually the weak ones in the story. They just never saw it that way. Do you get that? The Corinthian church people, they were the high and lofty ones. They thought they were right. We just went through Timothy Keller's prodigal God. They were the older brother types. Don't, don't question what I'm doing. I'm really rich. Obviously, I'm smart and intelligent. And you, you must be wrong on your stances because I'm really rich. I speak in tongues. I have all these spiritual gifts. You have the lower gifts. Obviously, I'm the godly one. I have all these esteemed gifts. That was what was going on. So, crazy situation. So, as we go into 2 Corinthians 1 and 2, let me pray. Father, we are amazed that you would be so patient, so slow to anger, so loving um, so, so gentle, so kind that you see every person's sin, things that we would consider atrocities and just um, life altering. And yet you sent your gospel and you knew that you would redeem a people through that. God, we pray that your word would be ringing true in our hearts, that we would be a people that have conviction, that have confession of sin, that have re true repentance of sin that through that we see renewal in ourselves and that we begin to learn to rest in Christ, not in our own works, that we rest in what Christ has accomplished in our place and that would lead to greater rejoicing and worship. So would you do that work in our hearts through your word? In your name we pray, amen. So Paul, as we read this, we're going to cover the first couple of verses and then we're just going through verse four today. So um, says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at just this first breakdown. I usually wouldn't spend a, as much time on this, uh, but again, building into the context here, Paul wants them to understand his authority. So notice he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Those two things. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So um, we're going to camp out here just a bit because this goes to the very core and the purpose of this letter, and it helps us understand deeper context. And I think that you'll see later on what that means. So Paul first just reminds them of who he was, even though he doesn't usually have to play that card. Um, he wanted the Corinthians to remember, I am an apostle. 
And so why that's important is an apostle, um, the word uh, just means in Greek, it just means one sent with a message. One sent with a message, right? And so, what, so that person that's sent with a message, who sent them? It's either a lord or a master or a king. So if, if an apostle goes with a message, it was the same thing in that culture as that king or that lord or master being standing there with them. Same authority. You would have to listen, change your course, do what was supposed to happen. And, and, so, and, and so he's saying, I'm an apostle. So now we have a little bit of confusion because we have people in our own, you know, the, the 19th and 20, 20th century, some in the 19th, a little bit some after the Enlightenment. From, from, from that period on, we've seen some people that pop up and say that they're apostles. So I've ran into a few guys. And so, you know, you're at some conference or something or someone's church. I used to get invited to a lot of different churches. And then um, this guy walks up, you know, like, oh, my name's Apostle Stephen. I mean, just, just what do you say to that? I, Hey, I'm Sankey from Salisaw. Um, what, what do you say when someone says they're an apostle? It's a self-titled apostle. And so some people, have, you may have come from a background where that was very uh, predominant, where they were always bringing in people that these were supposed to be the apostles. So part of that, and I'm not trying to take shots or, or make fun of that, literally it, it's part just ignorance and it's part of lacking history. And, and sometimes it's just pride because first of all, no one, no one, for the original 12 or 13 um, guys, um, no one, their predecessors and the guys that they discipled and, and established those churches, no one was like, oh, Paul's dead. I'll be the next apostle. Peter's dead. I'm an apostle also. They were like, no, 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 no. We're, we're disciples, but we're not an apostle. So the reason for that was that the word apostle sent with a message was it was, it was particularly chosen by Christ, these guys. And so here are some of the things that, that just so you'll know, because we're in a city where that might, may happen, the qualifications for an apostle were these. Um, first of all, they were selected and had been with Jesus during his earthly ministry. So if you run into someone and they, and they have that title, just say, so man, how old are you? So um, man, how did this happen? So they had been with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Secondly, they were personally, uh, they personally witnessed Jesus' physical body after his resurrection. Well, why was that important? Because every, there was all kinds of stories of what happened with Jesus' body. There were all kinds of other religions also. And so to say, no, 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 I saw his hands. They killed him on the cross. I saw his hands and his feet. It was establishing the church because you're crazy from 33 AD to 100 AD or 350 AD. You're crazy for going with a little group like this, meeting in someone's home. They're, they're talking about drinking his blood and eating his flesh. You're crazy. You believe he rose from the dead and then floated up to heaven? I saw it. I saw it. I was a witness to that. So those apostles were huge. And then the third thing was... Um, Having been empowered by the Holy Spirit, some of those guys were performing many, many miracles. So you have groups that so look at works of signs and miracles and stuff. So you have some a group called cessationists that say after the original apostles, the, the early church, 96 AD, they, say, they would say not very many or no miracles happened after that. Well, there were some miracles and stuff, but if you'll just take a historical look, if you'll go through the book of Acts even, and then you, you take historical, um, extra-biblical writings, there were still miracles and signs and wonders going on as the gospel broke into new areas. My personal belief on this, as I've put this together, lots of brilliant men that I'm standing on their shoulders, was that God, when the gospel went into a threshold, right? So a new doorway was opened, like Corinth, God used signs and miracles and wonders to draw attention to what? 
the gospel message. The gospel message. So the, the gospel went forward, and so these miracles and signs would happen. So these apostles, as they were the early church on mission, Matthew 28, Acts 1-8, um, they were going out, the gospel spreading, and so as they went into a new area, there were signs and wonders. There were all kinds of things. And then people were drawn in, and they listened to the message of the gospel. And then the church was established. And then you know what happened? There wasn't as many signs and miracles. And, and so, uh, so I'm not a cessationist, but... I do see very, very clearly that it was not the expectation that every Sunday, every church service, every small group, somebody's getting healed. And, and especially no one was walking around with the self-title, I'm a healer. So now again, we have people that claim apostleship and we have people self-titled healers. Just know biblically and historically that doesn't stand. Now, I, I personally believe God still can work miracles. God does do miraculous things from my view. So um, those guys had an empowering of the Holy Spirit to perform miracles and signs because then the fourth point about them, some of their teachings and writings were recognized and as inspired. So those apostles, that's the New Testament. So again, when Apostle Stephen comes up to you and says something like, hey man, did you add something? I haven't got the new version. Is there a new version where you, you got a new letter in here? Some new word from God? Obviously, that's not happening, right? And so just know that's what apostles were like. And so Paul's telling them, I'm an apostle. I was sent with a message. The very message that God used to save your soul. It was by the will of God. And he's comparing himself in just that very first statement with these guys that were kind of termed, we're going to learn later, super apostles, extremely philosophical and arrogant the way they talked, it was powerful. They, they worded their things. They, they had these great, great messages in the way they stood and talked and, and pounded their fists. The, their eloquence was clear. And so um, I don't work a whole lot on that. I'm not real polished. And so um, Paul was going, he was weak in stature. He was a small, frail guy who had been through all kinds of crazy sufferings. And so they viewed him as he's clearly out of the will of God. These other guys are rich and powerful of high status. He comes back on the boat and he's like been beat down, been bitten by snakes. They were shipwrecked again and again and again. He tells us stories about every single city. They're running them out of town trying to kill him. This guy can't be in the will of God. And, and the message of this is saying, that is exactly God's man. I'm an apostle by the will of God. And so Paul clarifies that. And so Paul is one of these extra apostles. What I mean by that is you had the original 12. Judas didn't do real well, right? So then you've got some other guys, two or three guys there in the, in the New Testament letters, about two or three other guys. But here's on Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 9. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul's saying, I wasn't in the original 11 there. He appeared also to me. Jesus appeared also to me for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So, so think that Paul's saying, I shouldn't even be called an apostle, except for the fact that I'm writing this letter to you. I have seen all these miracles. Jesus did appear to me. And so there's a, a section of time where Paul kind of, after he gets, uh, he's uh, um, saved and on the Damascus road that I'm about to hit on, there's a period of time, if you go and study it, um, where he goes and he's away for several months. I forget the area that he was in. And, and Acts brings it up in another couple of books. And Paul is clear that, uh, very clear that, he probably, Jesus literally in the physical body was talking to him, giving him part of revelation. Because so all this revelation that Paul has written over half the New Testament, that where did that come from? And so that, that Jesus spending time with him. So clearly Paul sees himself as unworthy to be called an apostle, yet he is an apostle. 
And he had to play that trump card with these Corinthians. Um, Paul's saying he's unworthy, but we have guys running around in our day self-proclaiming so that they can go buy jets or something. And so just know that for, for the, after 96 AD, no one was calling themselves apostles. The first three, the, and, and until 350, before we had, hey, here's the canon of scripture, several of those councils before they landed on, we believe these are the new 27 letters of the, the, the New Testament that add to the Old Testament to form our 66 books, the canon of the Bible. No one was going around saying, oh, I'm an apostle. Hey, uh, we're, we're forming this Bible. Any other apostles out there? They weren't doing that. 500s, 600s, 800s, 900s, 1250, no one's saying they're apostles. Tulsa, you can find a lot of apostles. So Paul says in, in Acts, in, in chapter 9, or Luke says, talking about Paul's um, um, conversion, says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. So Jesus is talking to Ananias. He says, he is chosen, an instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So, Jesus let him know, at least in part, of what he would be exposed to and what he would suffer. Can you imagine hearing all that? Some of the things that we've been through just in ministry... I've really thought, if I would have known beforehand we would have gone through all of this stuff, I would not have signed on. We were sitting in one church after nine months of a guy, a lead guy, saying, I forbid you other pastors to talk to the elders. I forbid any of us elders or pastors to meet together. We will have no more staff meetings. Nine months. Pleading, crying, letters. And then nine months later, the whole church, no one had an idea, and we're sitting in the pew he walks up with a letter, says, these men have come with problems against me. Do not trust these men. And everyone turns and looks all at us, the, the staff guys. And I remember turning to Jamie and go, so this is what that feels like. And people that you thought loved you are staring at you with daggers now. And then we didn't lose a person. Everyone knew that it was a rough situation. It was a bad scenario. Um, and it was, it was one of those seeds. And so we've had that happen. And so you, you think through, man, how do you go through? I would not have signed on for that. The, the, the difficulty that we, we went through that whole nine months or, you know, two years beforehand, um, the, the, the several couple, two or three years afterwards, miserable, miserable for my family. We've worried about the effects that it's had on our boys, seeing all the turmoil that that went through. I've just been listening to some two or three people sent me the, I guess it's all the excerpts of the, of the Mars Hill, what ended Mars Hill with, you know, uh, um, the stuff that went on up there. And so there's now um, uh, Christianity Today has got some of these podcasts that are available and you just hear it. And so it kind of brings back some, so like so we have some um, uh, PTSD when we hear some of the stuff. It's like, yep, that was what it was like. That was what it was like. And so um, Paul, hearing from Jesus, here's what it's going to be like. And, and let me tell you, church splits are nothing compared to a mob grabbing you. Later on, we'll see in 2 Corinthians. And five times, Paul says, I was given, I received 39 or 40 lashes minus one. Remember the scene in the Passion of the Christ movie? And you're just like, okay, let's go, let's go. Let's get out of this. Like, we get the point, it was bad. And it just, he just, Mel Gibson just drug out that scene for like, seemed like 24 minutes, you know? And it's like this whipping and lashing going on. And, and you're like, that's real. Five times that happened to Paul, 
39 lashings. And so um, when you think about that, what would we do? How would we handle? Do we really have a lot of persecution compared to what some of these guys went through? And here Paul's trying to say, I'm the one bringing the word of God to you. Um, Paul makes this explicit. If you, if you compare Paul's greeting here to, to his greetings in the other places, um, here's the, here are the other places when he, Paul writes his letters. Um, like to the first Corinthians, notice it's the same group. He says, um, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So Paul is killing the idea of elitists versus the weak. He's promoting the idea of unity among the saints. To the Galatians, notice he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, because he was addressing some things with the church at Galatia there, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all of the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. To the church in Ephesus, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's not throwing on there those things where he's saying, hey, I'm reminding you that you're not the only ones that are important. With the Corinthians, he has to repeatedly remind them in just the greeting, it's not about you. It's not only about you because pride was at the very core and at the very root of their problem. To the Philippians, to the Colossians, same things, uh, to Thessalonica, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But to the Corinthians, he had to say, it's not about you. To the whole church, all the saints, and to all the believers in all of Achaia, that's why he had to say in 2 Corinthians, just like in 1 Corinthians. So as we get deeper into this letter, we're going to see why Paul had to continue to identify with Christ and Christ's meekness and weakness and Christ's humility and for Paul to even own his sufferings. I remember when God was calling me into ministry, and I remember just thinking through for a lot of, a lot of church and a lot of pastors, sometimes it's, it, I don't think it's on purpose, but what happens is the message that's, that's pointed to or the screen that's pointed to, it's almost implied, or sometimes it's, it, it's explicitly implied, here is what you're supposed to live like. I live this way. My family lives this way. Now, church you should follow and do the same. Just make the choice and do the same. I don't think that was Paul's message. I think Paul was clearly talking about, here, here's how difficult it is to follow Jesus. Jesus said it's going to be difficult following him. It's going to be suffering. There's going to be suffering. And that does not sell in America. That does not sell in a consumeristic mindset. That does not grow churches quickly. When you're surrounded by places that are saying, hey, it's all about winning here. If you're with Jesus, you're a winner, and he will only let you win. So um, why were these imposters doing this, and why were the people falling for it? First of all, it's just pride, spiritual pride. We all carry baggage, and some, some baggage either puffs us up or it brings us humility. And secondly, just selfish heart desires. They had modified the gospel and Jesus to fit more with what the culture of Corinth appreciated. We don't want a low sage who's, who's crucified and suffering. We want a man who's exalted and powerful, of high status and eloquence. So what's at stake? Well, why is this so central? Why am I spending so much time? Why is Paul being so, um, so careful in his wording to the Corinthians? What's at stake? Eternity, salvation, eternal life. The true gospel is at stake. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. I think I've got to up here with this. This is the same book that we're in. It's, it, it's 
11 chapters later, Paul says, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. So he gets a little catty here, a little fun. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. We planted this church. I presented a very pure Christ in Christ alone. And now something's happening. You, you, you've got distracted. He says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, notice how confronted Paul is. Your whole lives are being consumed by a lie. Your version of Christianity, your entire church is being misled by lies. He says, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is at the heart of the letter. You stop listening to this God-given apostle, the, the shepherd here, and are looking and trusting to these other people. For if someone, and this is the crux of the letter, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. If someone comes... And you, if you receive a different spirit than the one you first received, if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you're putting up with it right now. You're already doing it. If someone comes with another Jesus, what would that be in our day? Think through. Versions of Jesus, products, a different Jesus, another version of Jesus. We have to... Prosperity gospel, health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Some people kind of in our circles, kind of, oh, we, we hate that. We hate it until then something happens in our life, and then actually we really profess that to God. We're like, how did you let this happen, God? I'm following you. I'm trying to be different. I'm trying to follow your will, and this bad thing happened. That's prosperity gospel thinking. So prosperity gospel, whether you think you abide by it or not, sometimes that, that's the way we think through it. Also, here, this is a very, very popular one. Your God-ordained potential. Your God-ordained potential life. Hey, three ways to have a successful life when a pandemic hits. Three points, successful life when a pandemic hits. Five ways this week that you can have an incredibly godly marriage. So it's just life point teaching, just little bullet points, life application, bullet points, life application. Your God-ordained life. God wants you to live this way, and if you go and live this way, it'll be the most prosperous, fun life ever. God wants that for you. Or Jesus may have been serious when he said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I'm not promising you this is easy. I'm not promising you that this is going to be light. I'm not promising you that you will not suffer. In fact, I've warned you and told you repeatedly, that's what it's going to be like. Have you seen my life? And it's about to get worse. Have you seen the first 100 years, 200 years, 300 years? That's what it's going to be like. We just happen to live in a time when, when our, our wonderful economy has allowed us all to have nice clothes and air conditioning and other than this place, cushioned seats. And so um, when, we're, when we're looking at the gospel, if you start to accept another Jesus, we're getting off. I brought up that, that idea, that moral therapeutic deism. The church sometimes just wants to be very good rule keepers, very moral. This is a huge one. Therapeutic, meaning our, our emotional needs. This has been a huge movement for the last 30 years, this idea. And that's what the whole seeker-sensitive church was capitalized on was, let's meet their felt needs. You're coming in with depression, we've got an answer for you. Jesus wants to take away your depression. I believe, so don't, don't, don't say, don't hear me wrong. I believe Jesus can take away your depression. I believe Jesus first wants to deal with sins, 
Because if you get your depression cleared up or your anxiety cleared up or your, your, your bad drug addiction cleared up and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, it's a bad, bad scenario. Right? And so the, the, the attractional model and the seeker-sensitive model for the last 30 or 40 years, um, they focus on felt needs. I, I'm not against felt needs. I'm very concerned. Uh, psychology and mental health is my uh, undergraduate degree, and so I have tons of counseling background. So I, I'm concerned about felt needs. I just believe salvation has to come first and so now the word of God is what we're turning to. And then people caring and being in life on life discipleship. That's how we can get through these other things. So moral, therapeutic, and then deism. That God is God. We believe in him. He's just standing back with his arms folded. Letting the whole ball of mess work itself out. You better work hard, Christians. You better work hard. Either go attack culture. Don't go with culture. Either go attack it. We'll go change it. Instead of going, hey, I've called you to be a gospel outpost. I've called you to be a gospel presence in the middle of darkness. Who would think Corinth would be a city that, that would flourish and turn into what happened there? Who would think Peoria and 61st, you know why there's not a lot of church plants around here? You know how many church plants are at 121st and 111th running down that corridor? Who thinks that God can do something? Who thinks that guys, CEOs that, that make over a million a year could sit on the same pew as a guy who's living at 40 bucks a month for his apartment, that they could go to the same small group, they could eat at the same table together? You got a plan for that? God does. God says, that, that's what I want. That shows love that's not of this world. That shows an understanding of the gospel that all of us should have the humility at the foot of the cross. That's what he wants to do. Remember my question each week, how can I be captivated by the Jesus of the cross when I'm obsessed with pride? You ever have people over three classes below you? You ever, ever hang out with people that don't dress like you, talk like you, been educated like you? How can I be captivated by Jesus of the cross? If I'm obsessed with pride, self-seeking, and comfort. Because comfort takes us a lot out of us. A lot of our time goes towards comfort, right? I love the version of Jesus that says, Sankey, as a child of God, you're blessed to the point that anything you desire, any amount of riches, anything that you, you set your eyes on, if you just claim it in the name of Jesus, it's yours. I would love that to be true. That's not what Jesus has said at all. That's not what any of the New Testament. In fact, Jesus repeatedly, Paul in 2 Timothy 4 says, at the end times, here's what's going to happen. People are going to walk away from the true gospel. They're going to walk away from sound teaching. They're going to accumulate for themselves teachers who tell them what they want to hear, whose desires match up with what the guy's message is saying. It is your best life now. Go pursue it. Here's four points on your best life right now. God is obligated to give it to you. So I want to make sure that you understand that I'm not saying that becoming a Christian, that you may have incredible blessing. Your business may flourish. 
Side note, it may be because you work 90 hours a week and, and neglect your family, but now you're a Christian, and so you're working 100 hours a week and you neglect your family, and maybe just your hard work did it, and you just go to church on Sundays. I've met a lot of guys like that. And then what do they do? Well, I give a really good tithe, man. We, we're, God's blessed our business. Who's blessing your kids? Who's blessing your wife? She's a workhorse at home trying to cover everything that you don't cover. You're not a great leader, but man, you're killing it in business. And you, you just attribute it all, well, God just blessed my business. So when we think through this, this was not matching up with the life suffering of Jesus. It was the exact opposite of Jesus' own teaching to us and the life that he exampled. It was his teaching and his example that were different. It was the apostles' teaching and their example. It was the early church, their teaching, and the history of the church that we see that that's not the case. So something different has changed in our modern times. There is another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. It's a Jesus that conforms to my idea of what he should be like, namely giving me what I want. So if we're not careful, that's the Jesus. We've recreated Jesus in our own image. Instead of me being transformed into his image, we've recreated a Jesus that fits along with all my desires. And now I just put God's blessing and find a few Proverbs and find a few Psalms that match up with that to say, thank you, you're justified in seeking those things. God's obligated to give it. So let's look at the last little part here. Verses three through four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So I want you to see there just quickly that um, who is the comforter? It is God himself. The one who's doing the comfort is God. Um, this word affliction means squeezed and pressed, much pressure, much difficulty. And Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Why would we need mercies if we've got it all together? Why would we need mercies if I've got exalted status? The God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Do you see the argument he's laying out here? You look down on people that have any kinds of afflictions and sufferings. I'm coming in as a guy in suffering saying I'm following Christ in that, and you have nothing to do with me. You won't even listen to me. My, my words mean nothing to you. So affliction is at the, at the center of this. Um, the purpose is we are comforted by God in our afflictions so that we might comfort others when they go through afflictions. The same word there. So the comforter is God himself. Interesting, the, the word here, comforter, is paraclete. Um, we, we, most people know that the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. So here in two or three other places, God the Father is mentioned as paraclete. The same word is mentioned for Jesus the Son. So um, John 14, 6, we, 14, 16, we know that, that the Holy Spirit is called a paraclete. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, paraclete, that he may abide with you forever. The same chapter, John 14, 26. But the comforter, paraclete, which is the Holy Ghost. Everybody okay? I use the word ghost. Um, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So we see the Holy Spirit and the Father are paracletes, and then also the Son is referred to as a paraclete in four or five verses. So what is God trying to say 
when in his word he refers to all three persons of the Trinity as this comforter. It's a beautiful picture. It's interesting that God would want himself to be known, all three persons, as a comforter, a paraclete. So God is the comforter. Where do you turn in afflictions? What do you turn to? Who do you turn to? Do you Google? Do you call a friend? In afflictions, God says, I'm the comforter. It's me. What do you turn to in afflictions? Also, the comfort that we receive from God. So now I've gone through afflictions. I've learned that God is my comforter. And now I wonder why this all happened. Don't have the answers for that. Don't know why it happened. But now here comes Bob. And Bob's having some afflictions that are similar. Bob, here's where I turn to for the comfort. I don't know how it worked out, but I was comforted in the middle of it. It didn't take away all the pain. It didn't mean that, that, that the loss of this person and this person and horrible things. It didn't mean that they didn't happen. It's not like a little uh, band-aid where we're just like trivial about it. No, it still happened, but he still brought me comfort. And not just a one-time comfort that I never had any problems with again. Maybe it's many months, many different days over several years, but he still provides me comfort. And Bob, I want you to know that same comfort, it's not from me. It's not from an equation. It, it's from God. It's a supernatural comfort that comes from God. And the design is that, that we would be able to share that with others. What if we don't receive the comfort of God available from God and through others because we're too afraid to let people know of our needs? What if we've bought into this mindset that, that we would never share with people what's going on in our life? Hey, we, we've just had a really difficult time right now in our marriage. Our small groups, is, is that a place that that can happen? Hey, we're, man, we're just running into some things with our, our, our kid. We, we saw some things happening and we went to a doctor and we're kind of, they're doing some tests and stuff. Those are scary times for people. We don't know what the diagnosis is yet, but here's what's going on with my mother, my father. Those, those are huge, weighty things. If we're just a people who never learn to express that and, and open up about that, we'll, we're missing out on so much as a community of people that, that God's design was supposed to be different. Does pride convince you that you shouldn't share your needs, your problem areas? Because you may be missing out on the comfort of God that you need, that your soul needs, as others share God's truth with them. Why is it we cannot find this comfort that we are seeking by looking to things in this world? The answer is because God is the only thing that could be our everything. We usually tend to look to other things in the world to find comfort when we're going through affliction. And we can't figure out why it's not taking away the pain. The new cars, the trip, the, the, the new clothes. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna fix my body, I'm gonna start working out. And there's still this void, this, this emptiness. It's because you're not going to the right place. It's because God is the only thing that could be our everything. So, in closing, affliction is present in your life or it's coming. God allows it. We are weakened by it so that God will be known and experienced and even loved as our comforter and our reward, even in the middle the comfort we experience from God, it is for God and for others' good. I'm sorry, it's for our good, it's for others' good, 
and it's for the glory of God. And Paul's wanting to show this, this Corinthian people, this is what affliction does. God is the comforter. It's for your good. It's for the good of others and it's for God's glory. So as we close and we head to the Lord's Supper, um, I would have you consider, um, have you experienced that true, true goodness from God? The most important first step of, of just salvation. As we go to the Lord's Supper, uh, we, we, it's an open communion where if you're visiting and you're um, in good standing with a, another church, as you're not running from church discipline, um, if you're a follower of Christ and been baptized, that you are able to partake with us. It's open communion. And if, if, but if you're a person that says, man, I've never really um, partaken of Christ himself first, then we would say don't partake of the table. Consider what you've heard about Christ and his gospel, what he has accomplished in your behalf. Take the time now to respond to Christ. Take the time to, to ask the Holy Spirit to open your heart for, for conviction to come, for the gifts of repentance and confession, for renewal to come. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ and not a believer, we would pray that that would be what you would do. If you are here, it's not, and you're wanting to partake of the Lord's Supper, it's not based on your ability and how good you did this week or how bad you did this week. Sometimes if it's a really bad week, and very, very many sins that are very clear in your eyes, maybe partaking is the best thing you can do to say, this is a lie that I'm trapped by sin. Because of this, the blood and body of Christ, sin no longer has any hold on me. I've been believing a lie this week, and I do this rejoicing you, proclaiming to my own heart and to others that I am free from sin because of what you've done. So um, as we go to that, let me pray, and then you're free to partake of the Lord's Supper. And then uh, Jason will come back up with one more song. Father, we are thankful for um, you being patient and kind with us and with all the churches from the Corinthians on, that your, your mercy and your kindness are beautiful. We thank you that you are a God of all mercy, that you're a God of all comfort. Father, we thank you that beyond our afflictions, our status of being Facing the wrath of God is our greatest concern beyond any afflictions. We thank you that you are the one who solved that problem for us, that you took on sin in our place. We thank you for the, but, the blood of Jesus that covers all sins. We thank you for the body of Christ broken in our place to take on wrath. Thank you that your perfect substitution was what we needed for our justification and for our ongoing sanctification. And we look forward for our future glorification. We would say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In your name we pray, amen.